This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we air the first ever Fresh Ed Live event, which was recorded last night in San Francisco. Gita steiner Comsey joined me to discuss the ways in which the global education industry has altered the state and notions of free public education. We touched on a range of topics in our live conversation, from Bridge International to the International Baccalaureate, and from network governance to system theory. Gita theorized why the state has taken on the logic of business and how a quantum leap in privatization has radically altered education. Gita steiner Comsey is permanent faculty at Teachers College, Columbia University. In addition, she has been seconded by the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva as a faculty member, and by NORAG as the director. So Gita steiner Comsey, welcome back to Fresh Ed. I interviewed Gita for the first time about two and a half years ago. And thank you so much for joining us tonight at the first ever Fresh Ed Live event. Thank you so much, Will. It's a big honor to be here. Will is high tech for me. I remember when we had the uh, Charleston CIS conference and also the regional CIS. He said we should use Twitter and he explained how Twitter works with 150 140 tweets or characters. And I said, this will never take off. And now it's the main communication tool of the U.S. president. So uh, you really proved me wrong that the technology really is taking off. So it's a pleasure to be here. I'm humbled because it's almost easier to have a podcast with Will without the audience because now I see all these accomplished colleagues and I feel they should be speaking also. So I'm glad that we are having a discussion. Maybe in the future we can ask many other people here to join Fresh Ed, either in person or over Skype. (laughs) So Gita, in our previous conversation back in 2016, you called yourself a second generation researcher of educational privatization. What did you mean by that? It was a statement first on the timing that I entered the topic, but also on the debates that were going on. Actually, Tony Werger lured me into that topic. In 2014-15, we were looking for a topic for the World Yearbook of Education, and we always look for hot topics that are coming up at the moment. And I was a serious editor, still am, now together with Tony and uh, Terry Seddon and Julie Allen. I suggested the global education industry, and of course, Tony Werger came to mind, and then Chris Lubinsky, who did at that time mostly research in the US, but now he's global also. I learned a lot from working with them. At that time, the whole discussion started to move. The first generation for me are the ones that really were amazed about the explosive growth of privatization and then public-private partnership as a follow-up. And as part of the first generation, looked at why, what accounts for this growth, what made, what changed in the environment that made the private sector move in so fast. There's this book that's a classic, uh, Thinking Towards Utopia by Cuban and uh, Tayak, which basically says it 
comes in cycles. <laughs> it's not a new phenomenon of private sector involvement. And in fact, there was big one in the 80s, but a lot of scandals evolved around the machines. And the question became, why did it come back? And what is different in this second wave of privatization education? And a lot of scholars did work on vouchers and choice. And that first group, I would say Tony Berger, uh, Susan Robertson, colleagues that are sitting in this room, Stephen Ball, from different angles, looked either how it changed the governance of education, but also the enabling factors such as the whole market, uh, what they call the market model in education or neoliberal model in education was the in, enabling environment. And I think to this day, I haven't come across any better figure than the one that uh, Susan Robertson and Tony Berger published in 2012 in that book, Public-Private Partnership, the one that is edited with Francine Menashi and Karen Mondi. I think that's the best way of explaining it. It's its own logic. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, and it, it is, became a global education policy, and that's how I came in, because I'm interested in global education policies and policy borrowing. The explosive growth of uh, choice, of per capita financing, of testing, mm-hmm of liberalization, of who is providing education. For me, these were all global education policies, and it all made sense to me why this type of global education policy is disseminating over the world. So this is the temporal <laughs> dimension. I'm not done yet. Okay, keep I'm not going. <laughs> we can uh, always edit it. I, I, <laughs> I think the second wave, so, so the first group of scholars really talked about the enabling environment, and then within them, of course, they keep writing important work. It then broke down into, for instance, Tony Berger to get, together with uh, Von de Villa and San, San Cao, so I don't know how to pronounce his last name, San Cao probably. Uh, Adrian talked about different reasons why governments buy into privatization. So these pathways of privatization became an important contribution to theory, and it's part of historical institutionalism to look at why at one particular moment governments or policy actors buy into global education policy. That's In policy borrowing research, that's an important question. Uh, Tony did that from a historical institutionalist perspective, or sometimes... He calls it also political economy, but I think it's more historical institutionalism. Um, and then others came up with new methods to look at it. Because once you see that the government ceased to be the sole provider and regulator of education, you get into network governance. And that was Stephen Ball's contribution, also using social network analysis trying to look at the blurred boundaries between the public and private sector. So the first generation also created a new theories and new methods. Now the second generation. The second generation, I think, a group of us, we are doing more and more trying to understand how it has 10 years after or 20 years after some countries, how has it transformed our understanding of education what, how has it transformed the role of the state, but also how has it transformed the private sector? And this structural coupling, we would say, 
between the private and public sector is what we are talking about these days. So, for instance, and many of us have written about that, the arrays of standards, the arrays of testing, the arrays of results-based management, results-based finance, the arrays of actually transnationalism, and maybe that's the only positive part that I would like to highlight, actually, because the, um, the private sector is in the comfortable position to be able to work locally and globally, whereas the public sector and public schools have by default to work nationally. So the private sector gets into a space that the public sector cannot offer. And I'm thinking of IB schools, international baccalaureate mm -hmm. schools, which have the huge race and parents wanting English as a language of instruction. And, and they don't want national history. They don't want national geography. I mean, this is a really interesting new space that is opening up between um, this hybrid forms. And this is the second generation that looks at the transformative role of public-private partnership for education and for the state, but also for education itself. So was there a particular moment for you as an individual, as a scholar, where you started saying, I have to get into that space of education privatization? I think uh, it's maybe the first time I was really shocked about the private sector involvement is when I heard from Natasha Rich, uh, who works on, in the UAE. She had this uh, quote, which we also, it's in, in a chapter that also was part of the 2016 volume, The Global Education Industry. She had this quote from Games Foundation by uh, Warki, who, and he meant it positively that he, say, he says, we sell first-class business and economy-class education like an airplane. We use the airplane model of education because we want parents to pay for what they can afford. So if they can afford, if they can only afford little, they pay less tuition. So they will have... They have English as a language of instruction, but it's taught by Pakistanis and Indians. And <laughs> if it's a first-class education, then they have to pay more. Then their children have access to gym, to after-school program, and to American and British teachers. So that was the first time I was really shell-shocked when I heard about this as a model, like the business model of education. And the whole purpose of public schooling is all about social cohesion, it is about the social mobility, it's about redistribution and equity. So this is when I was shocked. And the other thing when I was shocked, at Teachers College, we had this discussion on Pearson, when I realized that Pearson gets rid of publishing and newspapers because education is so much more lucrative. That's when I realized that there's really something going on uh, that uh, we need to understand better what's going on. And so you bring in this systems level approach theory mm -hmm. to the study of educational privatization. What is a systems level approach quickly? And then what does it actually tell us about <laughs> what does it actually tell us about educational privatization that hasn't been looked at before? 
why quickly? <laughs> I'm not interested in Lumanian systems theory, <laughs> maybe. So let me just say a, a few words. I mean, it, it is, people use systems theory. I know Steve Cleese uses it negatively, so it has a net negative connotation, but it, it's not what Stephen Cleese means. Uh, it is really a very specific theory by Niklas Luhmann, systems theory in comparative education, also Schriever and Florian Waldo and Barbara Schulte. We are a whole group doing systems theory. Uh, the idea of systems theory is that systems are closed systems, are closed entities, operatively closed, and every now and then they open up and are open for change. We have that in policy studies with theories that believe in punctuated equilibrium, Sabatier, Kingdom. These are the theories that also believe that not much is happening until something comes and there is a moment of openness and then change happens. So in moments where they just operate in a closed way, we have our own language in education. We have our own beliefs our own values, own actors, which is completely different or supposed to be completely different than the economy, the political system, the science system. So the question in systems theory is what happens when the systems approach each other? And we have that with science and politics in evidence-based policy planning. These are two systems that are structurally coupled in evidence-based policy planning as a result of which politics becomes more and more <coughs> scientized or pseudo-scientized in the form of uh, what some scholars call mode two knowledge, policy-relevant knowledge, which has nothing to do with foundational research, but it's mode two kind of knowledge, policy-relevant knowledge. So politicians themselves, they really take on the scientific argument. And scholars become, as a result of evidence-based policy planning, more and more politicized and agenda-driven also. So, but we have more. So this is the structural coupling between science and politics. And what we have since the 1990s in many countries is a structural coupling between education and the economy. And which means that education takes on economistic thinking, such as demand, supply, this was never, ever a criteria or a language that we used in education, but it has become the new normal. And in aid uh, and in development, the idea that you have conditional aid at the programmatic level, we always had in aid and development, we always had structural adjustment and poverty alleviation and then good governance. We always had macroeconomic conditions. But now the macroeconomic conditions are now at the program level with, you know, uh, results-based aid and based on what is being accomplished or not. So this is a very much an economistic way of thinking that you pay for a product, and you wait what the product is and the quality of the product. And this is a totally new thinking. And I'm of the opinion that there is no way back. We're so, stuck. no, we are stuck. Mm -hmm. We cannot think, uh, we cannot 
there's we have to live with the private sector and we have to but we have to study it and understand it better so what are the things about the private sector and its involvement in the coupling as a system of to to the public sector what is it that we should be looking at or what is it that you're looking at the thing that i really find important to understand is how not just the the neoliberal is it's like a label the market, let's call it the market model in education, enabled non-state actors to come in, but not now only as a provider, and that's Chris Lubinsky's big thing, as a policy entrepreneur. They became policy advisors. Uh, Gates Foundation, and, and they're very open about it, that they don't want just to give money, they want to disrupt, and actually Laura Patil's work on the Silicon Valley is all about the technology, ed technology that wants to disrupt, that wants to innovate. And this model of innovation that the private sector says it can do better than the public sector is important to study. Mm -hmm. What do they exactly mean with innovation and with disruption of public education? And what does it lead to? Is it a different kind of education? And is it different than what we know in aid? I've been a big critic, and actually Iveta and I, the book that we did on the Source Foundation, we we noticed that Source Foundation, but many other foundations and aid in general, there is this assumption that you fund a pilot project, and the word pilot project is another word for innovation. Nowadays, we would say innovation. You fund innovation, and then later on, when it's successful, the government or somebody, another donor will scale it up. It never happens. It never, never happens. And a lot of aid is just really expensive pilot projects that are not scalable and that actually are disruptive in a really bad way because you use all government resources, you bring corruption into a country, you bring big salaries, big money, but it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how does the private sector work differently? And I must say it's not just negative. Uh, like in India, especially when there is local philanthropy involved and local providers like CSR money, they tend to have cheaper pilot projects or cheaper innovation and they are more worried about sustainable change. So I find that's important to study the way of inter interventions, how interventions are done. But the whole other thing that I mentioned earlier, but maybe we talk about it later, what worries me is this increase of testing, of standardization, of uh, orientation towards results. And I think this has to do with the government opening up as a provider and changing its mode of regulation from what Stephen Ball would call from government to governance. So from uh, rules and regulation to outcomes orientation and monitoring of outcomes and results. So is that a result of the private involvement in the state? Like, is this because of standardization and testing? This, this reduces cost overall? I mean, it just becomes much cheaper to do a, a standard test for not only one whole country, but something that could conceivably be put through all different countries. So it is in all of these, again, it's like a systems way of looking at 
everything, systems theoretical, sociological systems theory. It was an enabling environment for businesses to come in because when I worked in the Ministry of Education and I worked almost 10 years in Switzerland, there were two ways of regulating. One was to, um, to ensure that everyone follows the rules and regulation that we passed. And the second one, believe it or not, were surprise visits to schools. That's the way how regulation used to work. And this is like completely different than now with establishing standards, having schools take, make students take tests, look at the test-based accountability, how Tony calls it test-based accountability, and then do self-evaluation after self-evaluation, annual reports after annual reports. This is the current way of evaluation. So once you have uh, standards, because you have an outcomes evaluation, it becomes lucrative and interesting for business because you can sell the same product, not just to one school, you can sell it to a whole district, to 10 districts, to 10 countries, to the whole world. Mm. And this is how Pearson and Cambridge and all these uh, brand names uh, work. Mm. So standardization on one hand was a condition for businesses even being interested in education to make it lucrative for them. But once they entered the scene, they further standardize it. Mm. They further, and that's a way to reduce costs by selling the same item to more people. So how did they get legitimated then? I mean, is it the state has to say, like, we trust these standards and <laughs> they can go all across every district or I think the whole accreditation policy that's uh, higher education had that much earlier mm -hmm. than the school uh, higher education is used to privatization and uh, and many countries actually had it at school level in India they have for many years different what they call boards exit exams and examinations that are taken and they are side by side and there is very often the risk that there is a Cambridge board certification, there is an IB board, there is Pearson uh, schools. And then the risk is that the public sector become the rest category. And that's where I think the Abidjan principles became important to look at the state's role for public education. If you, if you have no regulation at all and no concern for equity, you might very well end up having a diversity, a parallel education systems run the private sector, and parents can choose, and they can choose an you know first class model or an economy model. And then what what the re real risk is uh, that the middle class exits the public education system. That's my biggest worry. That's my biggest worry that, would, that the, once the middle school exits the public education system, and this happened in many developing countries, and this is happening in the U.S., then there's, you don't have spokespeople at the political elite for public education. You don't have spokespeople for equity, for social mobility, and what have you. So it is important to, there's no way not to work with the private sector but it's really important to examine uh, all the 
negative but also positive aspects actually when it comes to transnationalism i think so do you think that these sort of movements the abidjan principles the 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 strikes happening around the us do you think this is really going to make a change to the relationship between the public and the private sectors of education or do you think the the private sector is just going to continue to usurp more and more power no, I, you know, there are some, but the governments have to come on board and the multinationals have to come on board. Uh, for me, for instance, GPE is a good multinational. They have good values. Uh, I, you know, they also are in results-based aid, but to a much lesser extent than others, they have a fixed part and they have a variable part. And part of the variable part, they have good principles. They have equity uh, efficiency and learning outcomes. I can subscribe to every one of them. And they withhold, they withhold 30% of the grants they give until those conditions are met. But can they f uphold their principles, especially if they collaborate in an environment where they collaborate more and more with other funders? So this is one of the questions. But also the national, some national governments, when we had the Abidjan uh, principle, this guidelines for states' regulation towards public education. I think that's how it's called, right? Silvana sitting in front of me. <laughs> is it how, how it's called? How is it a long time? States obligation for? To provide education. Yes. We had a we organized it. Uh, NORAC um, helped organize the meeting in Geneva. And you have, you had government officials from Finland from Portugal and France, they really believe in a strong public education system. So there are governments that believe in strong uh, public education, and they believe in allowing the private sector to provide education, but they regulate it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a different approach than having for-profit education come in and uh, take over. Right. And finally, do you think, like, how does the human rights perspective, which we hear a lot about at a conference like this, fit into this conversation of a systems level analysis of public and private education? This is a very interesting and complicated discussion. And uh, I see Robin is here and Prati Shivas Deva. They worked a lot on low fee private schools. Mm -hmm. And um, it's an interesting marriage, actually, because in India and South Africa and Brazil, where they have a, a CSR and at the same time a right to education movement, that helped boost the private sector, actually. That helped the private sector to come in. Also in Pakistan, where they passed the rule when, whenever in a radius, I forgot, 15 kilometers there is no public school around, then anyone who presents themselves as able to open up a school, they get vouchers. So that's a form of privatization. <coughs> vouchers is a form of privatization. That was a way to fill the need and fill the gap of public schooling. So, the, and, and again, that also became attractive for the private sector to move in. That was Pearson with the 
uh, PALF with the Pearson Affordable uh, Learning Fund. They support low-fee private schools, especially also in countries where they have a lack of public schools. So it is, at the one hand, the right to free public education, but at the other hand, you also have the need to have more schools. And at this first stage, it's free, but you never know what happens at the next stage. And I think that's one thing that is not studied enough, that very often the private mm -hmm. sector comes in and they pilot something, they bring innovation for free through some foundation. And then later on, when it's scaled up, they ask for fee. And even the mother of all NGOs, Brack, who we all love, they, they move from being a free system to a low-fee private school system. So if Brack did that, just imagine which other NGOs will move into this direction in the future. Well, Gita Steiner-Kamsi, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. I think we should now open it up to the audience for questions. We have experts from all over the world here tonight. We'd love to hear from you. So we have a microphone that's going to circulate. Please um, make sure you speak into the microphone when it's, if you have a question or a comment. Please say your name and, and your institution so we get to know who each of you are. So Femi has the microphone. Any questions, you can raise your hand or comments. Um, thank you very much for interesting discussion. My name is Kaz. I'm a student at Teachers College, Columbia University. So it was really interesting to listen to Professor Steiner Kamsi's talk, you know, not in a classroom, but in this setting, it sounds, you know, more interesting, but I'm sure it's, <laughs> I mean, it's it 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 was as interesting as this. So yeah. Anyway, so my my question was um, about the uh, change of uh, business sector. So I think it's um, it often you know business sector like the private sector. Um, it's said to be against the uh, um, equality equity. So like the presence of, uh, like the intervention of that sector increases the inequality, inequity. But um, as you said that the, you know, the current uh, PPP changes the private sector or the education or, you know, all those. So is it possible that the business sector is going to be kind of uh, equity sensitive or equity oriented? So in a way that, you know, the business sector is going to be like a state, the nation state. Hi, I'm Robin Reed from the University of Toronto. And recently the Abidjan principles came out. So I was just wondering if you could speak to a little bit about if or how you think that might change the architecture in this area. Hi, I'm Paula. I am a consultant from Portugal. I work mainly uh, with things concerning children with disabilities. And um, I think that children with disabilities are usually the children that don't get to have the choice of what school they go to. So um, what does the landscape look like for the most underprivileged and vulnerable children? Yeah, uh, maybe we'll start so, with those so, three. So uh, if you don't mind, let me just uh, uh, start with cars. I would say the first and the third, Paula Hans, 
point and um, causes are connected. Once you withhold money until the proof has been given that students have learned, as a company, but also it could also be public schooling, you rather not have students with disabilities or bilingual children or poor children or children from rural areas. Um, if you're under pressure to prove towards your shareholders that you will enroll 10,000 students or 20,000 students over a short period of time and they have invested in that, so if it's even like an impact bond or what have you, then the tendency is to go with the easy students and leave out students that cost more uh, from an economic perspective. Having said this, this does not mean that private sector could make it a project, but probably more with philanthropic money than with business interest to have students with special needs. In but it's conceivable, but it is right now the models that exist now are really not catered towards students with special needs or uh, student, uh, marginalized students. And it has to do because they're under pressure to prove that they're successful. So this proof that they are successful and that they are cheap and they are cost effective by default excludes uh, students with special needs and, and become inequitable mm -hmm. as a result of this funding modality. Could I, I mean, there's, I just did a podcast, the newest one out with Julie Mead, a, a law professor at Wisconsin, who basically talks all about this issue of discrimination and privatization. And in the American context, what she was arguing was that the sort of dictionary definition that we might have of discrimination is not the legal definition. And so legally in America, you can exclude children with disabilities um, depending on which law you, funder, uh, uh, you fall under, depending on if you take money from the, the, the state or not. And so many private schools, for instance, can get away with that discrimination legally, even if we might say this is very much discrimination that's happening. So let me talk about Robin about the Abidjan principles, yes. the state's responsibility towards public education and regulation of the private sector. Um, it is a wonderful tool for litigation, I think, if, uh, but you need like a civil society in the country or a teachers union or groups or parents association who fight the negative impact of private sector involvement and, and step forward. And I think there are examples that existed in Eastern Europe where the group supported them to step forward and ensure that there is not a substandard education offered or that there is an open procurement of private providers and not that was the case in Liberia. So there already were a couple of elements of litigation and uh, groups stepping forward. The issue with the um, private sector, and I, I was fortunate enough to participate every now and then in the process of drafting, it is very complex because some countries, how to do it, and I hope, and it's so complex to cover every situation because you have in some countries like the Netherlands and you have uh, Belgium, you have a high level of private sector involvement, but private sector defined as church, 
So there's, this is also private sector. So how do you differentiate between for-profit and churches? And, and also, don't forget, community schools is something we all support. Uh, this is also private sector. So, but I think the spirit of the Abidjan principles are 100% right. And it helps to um, fight uh, abuses and uh, inequality if it happens. So it's a matter of now, uh, I think, dis disseminating it and making it known that they exist. And there are a few presentations this week about them. Any other questions? I, I think I saw a few hands. Yep, Brent. Uh, thank you both uh, for putting on this event. Uh, my name is Brent Edwards, and I'm at the University of Hawaii. And I'm just wondering if you could comment, um, I guess thinking from more of an international development perspective, how these trends towards privatization have changed the ways that development partners are working with governments. Um, have, you, have you seen a change away from working with the state directly to working with, I don't know, subcontractors or NGOs or somehow avoiding the traditional way of engaging with the state through development, where the, you would give a loan or engage directly with the state? Are we seeing different kinds of involvement uh, through privatization? A couple more. I think I saw another hand. Yeah. Hi, my name is Nisma. I'm from the University of Minnesota. Um, I just wanted to, I don't really have a question per se, but I just wanted to um, comment on one of the things Dr. Seiner Kamsi mentioned is um, with the first and second class economy of privatization. Um, I grew up in Saudi Arabia and I was just thinking how like I, I, I think I'm pretty sure I got what would be classified as a second as an economy class education because all my teachers were Pakistani, Indian, Bangladeshi, Sri Lankan. I think I turned out pretty well. But um, in the sense that like I think what happened there is the state doesn't really um, is not very interested in providing good education for people who are not native, who are not in this case Saudi. And so the in in I think in a lot of Middle Eastern countries, the um, the working class or the people who are brought to work um, on jobs. Um, across the economy are outnumber the native population. And so for their children, a lot of um, a lot of times the state doesn't really, the sense I got didn't really care about our, this quality of education. So I think that's where it was helpful actually to have these private models. Um, you had, you know, the American International School obviously that probably gave the first class education, but then there were other models that were available for us. So I just want to mention that, um, that that's happening too. Yeah. Excellent point. And then there was a question over here. Hi, thanks for this great talk. It's Camilladi, Teachers College. I wanted to ask a little bit about philanthropy. So we haven't directly um, addressed this, in, or you haven't directly addressed. How do you see the role of the of the philanthropic sector in making these markets and easing the way in for the private sector? Excellent. Should we take one more? You, Sangeeta, you you wonderfully explained how the progressively the the economics. Uh, discourse and language uh, mixed with education and got into education at the programmatic level. Um, the one thing that struck me is that you said you think we can't go back on it. And I would be interested to hear more why you think we can't go back. And don't you think there could be some other powerful narrative that might come in and potentially supplant and replace, same as this economic discourse replaced what was before, it might be something else replacing it maybe. I think we should <laughs> take it. Yes, I think uh, those four will. Let me start with um, Brent Edwards' comment on... Development partners. Development partners. Absolutely. I 
it's really interesting trend actually that more and more through multilateral aid, especially, rather than having RFPs out where we as universities and we can apply, governments directly hire companies, Pearson or Cambridge and McKinsey or Booz and others, and not just in the Emirates and Saudi Arabia and middle-income countries, but also lower middle-income countries. And uh, because they get the backup from bilateral donors, like DEFID is strongly supporting it, USAID is strongly supporting it, World Bank is strongly supporting private sector involvement as for tech, even for technical assistance. And when it comes to Technology, that's an old trend that, you know, in the technology sector, private companies were involved. But now even for anything, even strategic planning and other things, companies are hired. And I tend to always try to understand the enabling environment. I think we have not done a good job being self-critical in development. That old model of having very expensive pilot projects that are not scalable and not sustainable, we did that. It's us. That was before the private sector. And I think governments, there is a kickback to have private sector. I mean, I'm not denying that. And there might be ulterior motives for hiring companies rather than having an open RFP. But I don't, we don't know that. But I think traditional aid is now also challenged by the private sector that is coming in for having had all these unsustainable, very expensive pilot projects <coughs> carried out technical assistance by people from the global north with very little input except for, you know, at the end signing off from, from the countries. And I think the private sector works differently because they want to be cheap and cost-effective. So they have actually often more local input than traditional aid. And I'm being very self-critical here of uh, development, how it was done before. So I think the private, I really think private sector is not going away, but it challenges the way we, the same as it's challenged how nationalistic public education is, the private sector is also challenging traditional aid. And that part is good, actually. Mm-hmm. And I think there needs to be much more discussion and self-critical discussion, even at CIS, especially here. Uh, the other thing on PPP, what is not discussed enough, is the other direction. We criticize that the government is outsourcing to the private sector in the form of vouchers, but also as providers, all kinds of goods and services. But now there's this whole debate going on in aid that public money is not enough for development. So there is this push for having more private money and not in terms of donations. So the question is how to do that and how to do that in a way that is really new money, not just, I mean, philanthropy is money that exists. That's in the, in today's definition, not new money philanthropy, because the same they give, new money is, that's the term innovative financing in education. And Catherine is here, Catherine Magno. We got a, together um, a big grant from the Swiss, Science, Swiss National Science Foundation to study innovative financing in education. And 
develop training programs on that. Innovative financing in education is when new money is captured from commercial, from private sector, uh, and to understand how that functions, including social impact bonds, development impact bonds, corporate social responsibility. OECD is trying to capture how much that is in money. It's very little at the moment, but they're also not able to even capture it because companies do not like to say how much money they give. And, you know, some big questions are open, such as tax breaks for companies with the assumption if you, if you donate as a company, you get a tax break. Does the donation balance the tax break you give at the mm-hmm. end of the day? Probably not. But do we know that? No, we don't, because there is no research done on any of this. So I think the other side of PPP, the money flow from the private to the public is not studied enough. We studied, I mean, we as scholars, researchers, we studied more how public money goes to the private sector, but not enough how much private money goes to the public because there's no transparency about it. But this net forward group from OECD is trying to do that now. They did it, I think, for CSR in Brazil and in India. They have numbers because they have to be registered with the Ministry for Corporate Affairs. But other than that, there's very little knowledge about how much private money goes into public sector. That was Brent's point. Um, Nisa, that was a good point about Saudi. <coughs> similar to the Emirates, where um, actually the private sector is bigger than the public sector for a variety of reasons. So it's the same. I would say this is... Uh, Tony Berger's paths to privatization come to mind. There are different reasons why governments buy into privatization. And the Emirates the, the, and the Saudi situation with the large expat communities. Camila, your point about philanthropy. There's this, this really interesting discussion on philanthropy, whether philanthropy, that two-step model, and I think it needs to be studied, whether very often philanthropy, there is a blurred line, especially in the tech sector, between for-profit and non-profit, where it starts non-profit, and then when the pilot is successful, the product is sold uh, for-profit or is sold. So this is one of the things we are looking, whether other models exist, um, where, but philanthropy in itself, and I think India CSR is an interesting case to look into depth about the local philanthropy. There is much more studies on global philanthropy, Gates Foundation, uh, Soros, uh, others. There's there there are studies about global philanthropy, but not enough about local philanthropy, and I think they function differently. If you look at local philanthropy, in global philanthropy, education is second after health, only because Gates gives money to health, and it's the biggest. But local philanthropy, education becomes first. And what kind of education do they support? And where? Is it local? And what kind of... So there is much more needed. And whether it is a way to ease in for profit, it's one of the questions. It is in some... But does, do other models also exist would be important. 
And the last question about why can't we go back? Oh. All these elements that invited the private sector in, um, per capita financing, standardization of education, testing, data mining, because an evaluation will only be enforced rather than decreased. And that will, this is like a perpetual mobile. It will ensure it reproduces private sector involvement. Uh, but, you know, some countries had like a setback. I know Sweden, it was totally public education. And then they invited the private sector in and the quality of education suffered. And Andrea Schleicher, I think, went even to Sweden and said, you should stop having this for-profit private education in Sweden. It's a bad idea. So there is setback by some countries that went overboard and tried to regulate it more. But it's not conceivable of not having the private sector. Uh, it's like thinking of not having the private sector in health, uh, in the health sector. I don't think that's an option, this well, Kita, thank you so much again. Okay. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. Kita steiner Kompsi is a professor at Teachers College, Columbia University, and director of NORAG, which sponsored last night's Fresh Ed Live event. I'd like to thank everyone who attended last night's event. It really was a pleasure to meet many of the Fresh Ed fans. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and original music for Freshhead was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.